Hi, I'm Max Linsky, and today on The Books That Changed Us, Evan Ratliff. He's an award-winning journalist, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Atavist and the Atavist magazine, and his book The Mastermind, which made the New York Times list of most notable books of 2019, was just released in paperback. Evan is also, uh, I should acknowledge, my co-host on the Longform Podcast. Evan, uh, who are you, sir, and what do you do? Max, I'm a journalist and an author. I write reported narrative nonfiction magazine articles and books. I'm sometimes an editor, have been an editor in the past, and a podcast host together with you, my co-host. All right. I will admit that that was a ridiculous question because I totally know the answer to it, but I do not know the answer to the other questions I'm going to ask you. Uh, so here's the first one. Evan, is there a book that you can think of, one book potentially like from your childhood or when you were younger that made you want to become a writer, that inspired you, made you think that this is like a uh, a job you could have? Yes. And I know exactly what this book is, which is There Are No Children Here by Alex Kotlowitz, which I read in college and so the book is about Alice Kotlowitz basically embedded in this housing project in Chicago and spent a year with these two kids sort of profiling their lives and portraying everything that was swirling around them, which was gang violence and poverty and systems that did not care about them and police that did not care about them. And he got so, so deep into their world. And, you know, when I was a kid, the only nonfiction that we ever read was something like Walden or, you know, maybe a biography here and there. But that kind of deeply reported, embedded journalist, I just never read anything like that before. Was it the kind of thing where like, um, it was the first book like that nonfiction book that you like, couldn't put down? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was kind of like, the, it might have been the first nonfiction book like that, that I had ever read, period. But it was certainly the one that I felt like, oh, wow, this is a different kind of journalism. I mean, it's not like I hadn't read, you know, newspaper, I read the newspaper growing up, I read magazines, I did high school debates. So we did all kinds of research on nonfiction topics. But I read this Alex Kotlowitz book in a class and I kind of wanted to be a documentary photographer. I was interested in photography. So I took this class that was taught by a photographer named Alex Harris and a famous writer and psychiatrist named Robert Coles. And there was a lot of photography in the course, but also they assigned this book. And it was this book that really grabbed me in this course because, you know, what Kotlowitz had done in terms of the dedication to understanding his subjects and spending time with them, I thought, well, and also writing something that read essentially like a novel that I don't know that I thought that I could actually do that. Um, But the way it did kind of propel me into action was I was a photographer for the newspaper and I had never tried to write a story for the newspaper, the college newspaper. And after taking that course and reading that book, I wrote one long story for the sort of magazine that was connected to the newspaper. And I was definitely doing it kind of, it was about a jazz 
saxophone player, but I was sort of trying to do it in that style. Like I spent a whole semester embedded with this guy and trying to really understand his world and then, and then write about it. So that was kind of my probably pretty lame attempt, if I were to read it now, effort to kind of get at that type of work. And it ended up being the only, really the only thing I ever wrote, like had published when I was in college. I'm totally going to track down that article and put it in the show notes. <laughs> please, please don't do that. Although it isn't about, it was about an amazing guy. This guy, Paul Jeffrey, he was a really incredible guy. He played with all the like biggest jazz stars and he had story after story after story. So I think his stories were good. My story was probably not. Okay. Next question. Tell me about a book that changed you in some fundamental way could come at any point in your life, but like some book that came along and afterwards you were different. Well, Max, I knew that you were going to ask me this question because I've seen some of the other interviews that you've done. And I will say before I give an answer that it's a very tricky question to answer because when you start thinking about it, I feel like the natural tendency is to try to find a book that will make you seem smarter and more thoughtful. What was the book, Evan? <laughs> well, uh, this is going to sound crazy. I'll blow your mind with this. The Bible. You're going the Bible. <laughs> We've had a couple of repeat books on the show so far. And uh, I got to tell you, this is a first. You're the first person to cite the Bible. Nobody said the Bible? Nobody said the Bible so far. Uh, <laughs> tell me about the Bible. Well... I went to a high school, I grew up in the South. I went to a high school that was quite religious at the time that I went there. We had to take Old Testament Bible for a year and New Testament Bible for a year uh, required in high school. And there was also a lot of religious discussion. There was something called Christian Emphasis Week, uh, where they brought in speakers to talk about Christianity and and a very sort of evangelical, let's say, flavor of Christianity in many cases. And so I was forced to read the Bible backwards and forwards, which I did not want to do or like to do. I mean, I grew up in a sort of moderately Christian family that, you know, we went to church a bit, but then we sort of stopped going. And, but looking back, it actually had this sort of very profound influence on me, not actually the Bible itself, but having to grapple with the arguments with people who were religious to understand how they thought and why they thought that way, it kind of like built a certain skepticism into my approach to life. I mean, I guess I should say like, I am not now Christian and I don't believe in the Bible. So it was a process of maybe rejecting something that I grew up with, but I think I appreciate how much I know about it and that it's not some foreign thing to me that I'm rejecting on the basis. And when I say rejecting, I just, I don't believe it, but I'm not like rejecting the people who believe it. But I think it really, really was intertwined with my sort of like intellectual development, like friends that I had at that time are still my friends today. And a lot of our friendship was based on these discussions that we would have to have with people about what they believed and whether you were Christian and being non-Christian was kind of like being on the outside of this club and you had to make an argument for it. So it just, it forced me to kind of think about a lot of things that I think 
growing up, you you might not necessarily be required to think about. And I, I feel like it gave me a an outlook that has, I think, served me in the writing that I've chosen to do in some ways. Help me understand like uh, how it connects to your current work. Like that makes sense to me how connected it was to your youth, but help me understand how, how it plays with your journalism. Well, part of it, I think, is a kind of... I guess, skepticism of authority. I mean, this was the authority. Like it was taught as the absolute truth, the literal truth. And so having to confront that and say, well, for the reasons that I can see from reading it, I don't actually believe it in that way. I think that kind of gave me a feeling that sticks with me to this day, that skepticism about authority and a skepticism about official pronouncements and groupthink uh, that I'm trying to avoid whenever I am doing my journalism. And then there's also sort of like a textual analysis part of it where you really go into it and kind of break it down line by line, verse by verse, and try to understand which, what each part of it is saying. And I feel like that's helpful when you're doing research. And then I think also, as part of my job, I'd go out and talk to people of all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of beliefs. And I think it's helpful to have grown up around people who I did not eventually agree with, but, you know, I could still be friends with them. I could still converse with them. I could still discuss and debate with them. When you are a journalist, that's basically what you're required to do is go converse with people, try to understand their their lives and their world. and just listen and talk and converse and ask questions. And then you can draw your own conclusions later. Do you come back to it? Like when was the last time you opened the Bible? I don't come back to it that much. I mean, I think it is handy to have a kind of at least partial knowledge of it. I mean, I wish I had a similar knowledge of say the Quran because there's a lot of references to the Bible that come up and they tend to be familiar to me when they do. I would say I actually looked at the Bible like within the last month uh, because a friend of a high school friend of mine and I were talking about a particular Bible verse that I was trying to remember what it was from. And it's a bit of a, a silly one, but uh, it wasn't like we were debating the ins and outs of the Bible. We were trying to remember like this very funny part of the New Testament. <laughs> and I, I couldn't remember if it, it's in Matthew actually. So uh, I went and looked it up. Huh. Do you feel like you're, you want your, uh, your kids to know the Bible? I've been thinking about that and in some ways, no, because I, I don't want them to feel the, I mean, there is a sort of negative pressure when you're sort of forced into something and you have to decide, okay, am I going to accept it or, or reject it? You know, I have to, it's valuable to know about the thing and to have made that decision. And so I value that I did that, but at the same time, I'm not sure I want to force my kids to go to church when I don't go to church just so that they can understand it. I, th I think maybe maybe when they get to college, they could take a course on sort of like a literary approach to the Bible or something, or, or maybe there's some other way for them to learn about it. But it seems it would seem off for me to kind of like send them into church when I wouldn't go in order to learn about it. But some part of you hopes that they kind of like find it on their own at some point? Yeah. I think find it on their own and understand what it means in the world and try to take it at face value to know what the people who, 
you know, follow those tenets who are many people in our society believe, then I, I think that's worthwhile. Great answer. Great answer. <laughs> All right. I got one last one for you, then I'll let you go. Hit me. Is there a, is there a book that helped you when you were writing The Mastermind, which is now out in paperback? Yes. There's a book that I read like many times when I'm writing, which is uh, The Orchid Thief by Susan Orlean. There's something about The Orchid Thief. I'm not even sure I can articulate it to you, but there's something about the way she captures detail that I just, it gets me in a mode of trying to write that way. Not that I ever think I've written anything like The Orchid Thief necessarily, but just the rhythm of the sentences, the details, the way they're laid out. Like I've probably read the opening chapter of that book like 50 times <laughs> because I'll just sit down and read it before I start writing. It's almost like, it's like a kind of plagiarism, but it's not plagiarism. Like it's, it's like I'm plagiarizing like a feeling, like a feeling of writing that I would like to capture is in that book in all sorts of different ways. What's the feeling? The feeling is partly it's a feeling of taking a topic or a person that might not inherently be interesting to a lot of people. Or if you sort of said a little bit about them, people might say, oh, well, yeah, okay. There's a guy in Florida who tried to steal an orchid and he got caught. And then sort of drawing from that person's story so much sort of intimate personal detail and framing it in a certain way that you actually can't help but be totally fascinated with this person. And you want to know what happens to him and you want to know where he came from and you want to go down all the little tangents of how he did what he did, how he became who he was. And that's the feeling that I also would like to try to capture and dissecting different ways in which she did it is part of what helps me kind of like get started on my own writing. Also, there's just, it's so fun. Like there's a line at the very beginning of the book, which again, I've read like that chapter probably 50 times, which is like, he has the posture of an al dente spaghetti, which is like, <laughs> there's just something so perfect about that. And also you already are getting the feeling like, oh, this is going to be a fun ride. Like this is going to be not just kind of like dragging me through the swamp. This is going to be actually completely weird and fascinating. The book you wrote is like, it's not a fun story. I mean, do you think that, that the story of Paul LaRue is a fun story? No, I don't think my book is a fun story. Although I think what keeps it being a fun, from being a kind of fun story is that there are very serious consequences in the book for people. You know, people died, people were threatened, people you know, this is a criminal empire in which there were victims of all sorts. So I think that is always going to keep it out of the realm of just like a fun romp. But I do think there are some pretty weird aspects to the book and some pretty bizarre characters. And I did try to sort of bring forward those, those moments. Like there's a guy who they figure out that he's living under a fake name. And his name is John Nash. And like when they figure out he lived under a fake name, one of the craziest things about him is that his real name is John Nash. He just <laughs> stole the identity of a different John Nash, which like in some ways makes sense, but it's also like, why didn't you find someone else? And there's a lot of stuff like that where maybe to just lighten the mood, I tried to 
get that stuff in and to try to capture that spirit. And also, you know, no one wants to read something that's just a slog, you know, in certain types of books, but it's got to have enough in it to make you think, wow, you have to be grabbed by certain details along the way that really stick in your mind. And so that's what I was trying to do. Is there a connection between Kotlowitz and Orlean to you? Yeah, I think they're doing somewhat different things in their work. I think Alex Kotlowitz's work is, I wouldn't say issue-based, but you know, he's illuminating certain societal issues that sort of really demand attention, you know, poverty, for instance. And I think Susan is not so much doing that, although you will find that. And she has all sorts of books and all sorts of stories. So you'll definitely find that in her stories. But I think what unites them and probably what interests me about both of them is the time that they spend, the dedication that they have to getting the full story and sort of trying to portray full characters, mostly by spending enough time with them, with the reporting, with the research. And, you know, that's something that I always aspired to do from the very beginning of my career was like, have that time, have that time to be able to embed with people so that you could come out of that world and tell a story that really felt full and real. And they're both masters of that aspect of the work. And also writing something that feels like fiction in some ways, that's written in a style that both captures the facts and truth as close as you can get to it, but also has stylish sentences and clever details and all of the aspects that make you want to read a fun book. Do you feel like you've um, found that space now? Have you found that time? I think so. Like, I feel like it's never a continuous thing. Like it's always, you're never set on that front. You know, you find the time for one project and then you're sort of struggling to find something that maybe pays in the right way to give you that time to allow you to do it. And so I feel like for the mastermind, I was able to get that time and I spent almost five years on it. And that felt like this was the type of project that I had always been looking for. And then it's a matter of, well, can you find another one? So it depends on what moment you ask me, whether I feel like I have found that time or I'm still looking for it. Thanks for doing this, man. Well, thanks, Max. I appreciate it. The Books That Changed Us is made in partnership with Longform and MailChimp Presents. The show is produced by Janelle Pfeiffer, art by Joel Avellino, music by Aaron Lammer. Thank you to Evan Ratliff, my Longform co-host, for sharing the books that changed him. I actually learned something new about the guy. The paperback version of Evan's book, The Mastermind, is out now. Go get it. And don't forget, you can find the whole Buy the Books lineup at MailChimp.com slash presents. <laughs>